This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hi, and welcome to the 22nd episode of Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas. I've been practicing over 20 years, and I've been podcasting now since October. So I'm absolutely delighted to be here, and I'm delighted you're here. We're going to be talking today about how to accept your body. What triggered this podcast was a listener email. I actually wrote a post to answer her because I was so moved by what she said in her email to me. There are a lot of people who have trouble accepting body image or just their body as it is. And of course, there can be some pretty irrational, screwed up ways of looking at your body too. And we'll talk about the different psychological diagnoses that have to do with eating and body image. Then I'm going to touch briefly on my own anorexia and what I learned. I'm no longer actively anorexic. I had it as a senior in college and a little bit before then, a little bit after that, I was thinking that people who listen to this podcast fairly regularly, um, they may be beginning to wonder if I've had every (laughs) psychological problem there is, because I've talked about panic disorder, and now I'm talking about anorexia. No, I have not had them all, (laughs) but I certainly, through having anorexia, learned a lot about it, and so I'll share that with you. Then there are three things that I believe you can do today to begin body acceptance, You know, I like to focus on what we can do about things instead of just having insight to them. I think hope comes from a change of behavior. So we'll talk about that. And then, as I do every podcast, I will feature another email. This one is from someone who was having anger issues and wondered how they could be connected to her childhood. She had a a mother with borderline personality disorder. So that's what's on our plate for today. No pun intended. You know, sometimes I get emails that really are so honest and vulnerable. I feel very honored to have people seek me out to ask me questions about therapy or what they're struggling with. It's one of the things I love about both blogging and now podcasting. So here's this email. I wanted to tell you that I really enjoy your podcast. I always look forward to the 20 to 30 minutes where I can just relax and listen to your discussion. I've always struggled with my weight, despite healthy eating and exercise. While I have never been obese, I have always been above average, and so body image has become a target for my mental illness to unleash upon. I purposefully avoid mirrors, cringe at photos of myself, and tell myself that when something does not work out romantically for me, the reason is my weight and body size. I look at other women and recognize that they are not better than me in any realm except they are thin and I am not. It becomes the common denominator in all of my unhappiness. I'm not even sure the obvious solution, drastic measures to lose weight, will provide me with comfort I seek. I guess my question is, how do I separate my body image from self-worth and how do I learn to love the body that I have? As you can see, The writer is very insightful about the fact that just losing weight is not going to be the issue. Her 
inner self-loathing has gotten to the point where it's seeped into so much of her being that she knows that this is what's got to be attended to. And boy, how do I learn to love the body I have? Is that ever a $6 million question? And one that many, many of us struggle with. I'm going to list the diagnoses that include body image problems. But I first want to say that when self-loathing turns really, really serious towards your body, it's called body dysmorphia, which is critically obsessing about a certain part of your body and then doing all kinds of things to change it, surgeries, procedures. It can be your nose, it can be your ears, it can be your knees or your legs. It can be any part of you that you cannot get it out of your head that there's something wrong with you. And of course, it's completely irrational and can certainly turn into major depression, it can turn into these other eating disorders as well. So there are four main types of eating disorders. There's anorexia nervosa. These people see themselves as overweight, even though they are dangerously thin and they starve themselves. However, we should know that anorexia is not about food. It's about control and esteem, self-esteem. So when you're working with someone who's anorexic, Focusing on food or eating or putting pressure on them about eating unless they are at dangerous levels is not something you want to do or is something you want to handle very carefully. Then there's bulimia nervosa is the actual term for it, but most people call it bulimia. These folks eat unusually large amounts of food, what's called binging, and then they purge or they vomit, they take laxatives or diuretics, they fast or they excessively exercise. I mean hours and hours of exercise. There's one that's not uh, in the actual typology, but most clinicians call it bulimorexia, which is a combination of anorexia and bulimia. There are a couple that have been newer to the eating disorder spectrum. One is called a binge eating disorder, where they eat large amounts of food, but they do not purge. So they often become overweight or obese. And then there's a new disorder called, well, it's not a new disorder, but it's new to the diagnostic manual. It's called avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, where for some reason a person struggles to eat certain foods or there's some trauma associated with eating, like perhaps a choking episode, something like that. And the treatment is very different from the other three. Obesity, interestingly enough, is not a psychological diagnosis, and I have included a really good article on obesity and why it's not considered a diagnosis that appeared in Psychology Today. I've included that in your show notes, because that topic would be a podcast in and of itself. In fact, any one of these particular disorders might be a podcast all by itself. In my experience as a clinician, eating disorders, in particular anorexia, is one of the most difficult problems to treat. It's difficult for the patient to get better. Her or his thinking is extremely rigid around the idea of food and their body image, and yet they have to eat to live. So I really take my hat off to people who have been anorexic and they have somehow beaten their distortions. None of these disorders are helped by the constant exposure, especially women have in our culture, to photoshopped adolescent models I love it when these young-looking girls are selling aging cream. It's just so ironic to me. It's just strange. But now men are being affected as well with the whole dad bod thing 
versus uh, how many pictures now do we see of six packs or eight packs or 10 packs? Our culture is trying to change. Older models are being used. More regular body types are being used as models. Their Facebook pages and workout groups encouraging a healthy lifestyle rather than how thin you are. But it's still very hard. How many of you... If you see a link on social media that promises the loss of 10 pounds, even even if you tell yourself, this is just stupid, you know, they're trying to sell me something, you still click on it. It's this fascination we have with being thin. And I think that fascination is fueled by shame. As I said before, the writer above knows rationally that weight loss isn't going to solve the problem with her shame or her low self-esteem. Don't get me wrong, weight loss surgeries can be a wonderful tool. I've had several patients who have had gastric bypass or gastric sleeve operations. I guess you would call them procedures. And actually, I've learned a lot about change from these people because as they are drastically reducing the amount of food they eat, they obviously have to deal with all the feelings and comfort sinking that was involved in eating. Also, it changes their social relationships. Later, I'll even tell you a specific suggestion that I've learned from one of my gastric surgery patients. She's done a great job and she taught me things like people always do. My patients teach me every day. So let's get practical. What do you do every day if you're trying to love the body you're in? Years ago, as I said, I was a senior in college. I was definitely anorexic. I can remember what I ate. Let's see, I ate one or two boxes of raisins for breakfast. I ate a frozen diet food. It was called Seago at the time. There was Metrical Seago, and I would freeze it so I would eat it very slowly. That was 225 calories. Well, we're up to a whopping maybe 400 calories. And then I would have a salad or a baked potato at night. That was it. Every day. Maybe 700, 800 calories, something like that. I was extremely thin, and I had double pneumonia twice that year which scared me because I didn't like being sick. I never got treatment, but I was one of the lucky ones who began to start eating on my own. There was not pressure from my family. In fact, my mother told me I had never looked better, which of course revealed her own eating disorder. But I still had struggles for years with body image. That was definitely left over from my journey with anorexia. I call it now eating disorder thinking, and I think it's in many ways the hardest thing to get rid of. So my therapist told me to go home, take off all my clothes, and sit in front of a mirror. I was supposed to talk to myself about what I liked. And I I can remember staring at her, just saying, you want me to do what? I was absolutely horrified. But I did it. And as I think about it, it may have been the first time that I'd searched for something positive to say about my body, rather than raking it and me over the proverbial coals. You've got to change the message you give yourself. That's what that therapist was trying to teach me. And hopefully, maybe some of that was absorbed and I actually learned it. However, I'll share with you that I still, when I see a picture of myself, I'll look for the little muffin top over my jeans or I'm highly critical at times and then not at others. It's really strange. It kind of ebbs and flows. That's that eating disordered thinking. It's just hard to get rid of. But there are actually three steps to stop shaming comments to yourself. The first is you have to identify that you're doing it. You have to tune in to that 
self-talk, the constant monologue that's going on in your head and editing or (laughs) giving out comments, sort of as little voices we all have in our head. It's not psychosis. It's the background noise of our minds. So first, you have to identify that you are shaming yourself. The second step is if you have to yell at yourself, you yell at yourself, stop. It's not helpful. I wouldn't tell anyone that I cared about this kind of thing. Then the third step is an extremely important one, and a lot of times what people don't do. You have to replace the thought. That's what that therapist who was having me sit in front of a mirror was trying to do. She was trying to help me replace my negative thinking with positive thinking, positive comments. You replace the shame with affirmation. This takes practice, but you can do it. The second thing to do to, again, encourage a more positive body image for yourself is to give yourself encouragement in becoming who you want to be. This is where I learned something from that gastric surgery patient. She told me that she was focusing not on weight loss, but on what she termed non-scale successes, meaning that good things were happening that weren't about the number on the scale. For example, she could walk in the park with fewer stops. She could fit more easily behind a steering wheel. Both of those things had nothing to do with an actual number, but helped her give herself encouragement. Wow, this is changing. This is great. Now, again, her goal was weight loss. But actually, anyone could use this kind of reasoning to try to love their body shape or size. I'll give you some suggestions. I'm laughing more than I used to. When I'd weigh myself four times a day, all I could think of was a number. And I love that I'm laughing. I got through an office lunch meeting without worrying about how I looked eating. A lot of people with eating disorders or problems with body image are very self-conscious eaters. And so frequently just realizing that you, you're working on that and thinking, you know, nobody's really watching me chew or watching the food I eat. Now, maybe if you've never eaten meat in front of them or you've never had anything but a salad, then yeah, they'll go, oh, what kind of sandwich did you get? But more than likely, it's a casual comment. It's your self-consciousness that's the problem. Another way of knowing that you are moving more into loving your body shape, if you could say to yourself, Someone told me I look nice today, and I simply said, thank you. Again, non-scale successes, ways that you can see that you're changing that have nothing to do with the number on a scale. I think that's very important and a way to accept your body. Basically, you're giving yourself credit for the change that you're trying to create. You're changing mentally. You're changing emotionally, not just the physical changes in your body. And the third way, get connected and risk being visible. Let's think about it. The first way we're introduced to someone is that they see us frequently. Not all the time. Maybe there was a phone call. Maybe there was a text. But people see us and begin to form an idea of who we are. We're short. We're tall. We're blonde. We're redheaded. We're white. We're black. So if you hate parts of your body or you have a poor body image, Guess what you may do? You may isolate. You don't want people to see what you see. Never mind that what you see is highly likely to be completely irrational, especially if it's based on shame or self-loathing. But you may be one of these people who goes to work and goes home. Or you do things with your kids, but you never do anything that's simply about you, where the attention might be focused on you. 
the best way to confront this tendency to just hole up and hide? Start slowly, but begin to reach out. I love the grocery store as a setting for practicing change. So, for example, in the grocery store, let's say you're in the checkout line, make small talk with the cashier or the person who's behind you. Call an old school friend and catch up. Go to an early church service or a late mass. Volunteer for a small role in your child's school. Now, not homeroom mom or whatever they call it now, or homeroom dad, but something small where you're risking doing something and being more visible. But you also don't have too much burden on it because actually you're practicing not isolating, right? I've had people volunteer to walk dogs at the local shelter. That's something that really brings them a lot of pleasure and, again, gets them out a little bit. And they're dealing with non-humans, so they feel better about it. You could take up tickets at a fundraiser, anything that just gets you out. Do anything you can possibly think of to begin building relationships and to feel more engaged with others. Now, maybe you did do this, but you developed problems with body image or eating And so you disengage. So some of this may be a re-engagement process. What your tendency will be to do in this sense is, well, now, I can't make these changes because I haven't talked to anybody in over a year. I can't call that friend now out of the blue. My child's been in that school forever, and I've never volunteered for anything. They'll think it's weird. Yes, you can. People do it all the time. You can also simply be afraid of failure. Maybe last time you tried to get out and be more visible or be more engaged, you got scared and dropped out. So how will this be any different? Well, you don't know until you try. But this thinking will make you your own enemy, and you'll sabotage yourself before you ever get started. An example I like to use is, how many times did you try to ride a bike before you actually succeeded? I was awful. (laughs) And you had training wheels. I had training wheels. So getting and staying engaged is a lot harder, especially if you're struggling with your body. But it's a skill like anything else. Getting and staying connected is a skill. It isn't an easy journey. It takes time and practice, and you'll feel vulnerable. But that very vulnerability can make you stronger. So let's recap three major ways that you can work on a more positive body image that don't have anything to do with weight loss. Stop shaming yourself. Give yourself encouragement that's not about weight loss, but it's about behavioral change that you can tell, emotional change, mental change, and get connected and risk being visible, risk being connected. You can practice and you can try and you'll feel better for it. One of the things that I think is important perhaps to say here, Dove, who's one of the companies that actually is trying to change how they advertise and using really diverse women as models, They did a study where they had mothers and daughters, but they separated them. The mothers were asked, what do you like about your body? What do you don't like about your body? And they would say, I don't like my nose, or I've always had skinny arms. And then the mothers would quickly say, but you know, I've only said positive things to my daughter about her body, so she's not going to feel at all like I feel. Well, the daughters at the same time were being asked to write about the same thing, what they liked about their bodies and what they didn't. And guess what? When the daughters showed their mothers what they had written, the girl who had the mother who didn't like her nose didn't like her own nose. The skinny-armed mom, yep, she had a child who didn't like her skinny arms. It's amazing what we teach to our children that we don't realize. 
It's not what we say, it's what we do. So maybe you can use that as motivation for your own change. Good luck. Okay, so here's an email that I received. Hi, I'm a 21-year-old girl. I came across your site talking about being raised by borderline mothers. I was actually adopted by a woman who I believe has borderline personality disorder. She was very abusive physically and emotionally. I had to cut contact with her because I felt like I was going crazy, remembering things and then her denying them, and she could never apologize. Once she actually told me that if I wanted a relationship with her, I would have to apologize for being a horrible child. So I guess the reason I wanted to talk to you was because now I'm having anger problems. I look at little kids and am immediately annoyed. Or I see a person just hanging out and upset with the way they're standing or so on. I'm normally a very compassionate person, but lately I've had so much anger, I don't know how to properly dispose of it. I was hoping that you might be able to give me any advice on how to deal with all my emotions in a healthy manner. Any advice would be so much appreciated. Thank you so much. First of all, borderline personality disorder is a very complicated disorder. I'm I'm actually going to do a podcast on it by itself. I did mention it in the podcast called The Emotionally Abusive Mother. And right now, I don't remember the number of that one, but it is in the lineup. So you might want to go there, but I'm going to do a podcast specifically on borderline personality disorder. These are people who are really ruled by their emotions and their very intense emotions and often irrational thinking. They've often experienced trauma themselves and they're very fragile. But here's my answer. I'm not sure why at this particular moment you're becoming more irritable. It could have something to do with timing With your adopted mom out of the picture, maybe you're more likely to allow yourself anger, or it may feel safe to be angry. Secondly, you may have fantasies that the child or the person hanging out has had it much easier than you, and that could be true or not, but it makes you angry because it feels unfair. It's amazing sometimes what our imaginations can do and lead us down paths that are very self-destructive. Channeling anger can be difficult, but it's very doable. You don't want to dispose of it because it's there for a reason. It's giving you a message. It's part of grieving, just as much as sadness or fear. It's not good to get stuck in anger, but to realize you may have other emotions as well. You can journal, go to therapy, really exercise hard while you're feeling the anger. Do yoga where other softer emotions can emerge. I had a patient one time who was very, very angry with a mother who also was borderline, and this particular patient was very soft-spoken. She bought a stuffed animal that reminded her of the nickname that her mother had been called. And she came in one day smiling, telling me she'd beaten the daylights out of that stuffed animal for about two hours. So that may seem kind of silly, but actually it was very symbolic for her and was the beginning of her confrontation, albeit gentle, with her borderline mom. A major reason why I picked this particular email is because I want to make the point that emotions are giving us a message, whether we deem them positive or negative, and it's important to try to figure out where they originate and why they're happening in the present moment.
Thanks again for listening. There are many ways you can reach out to me, and I'd love that. I love getting these emails from either readers on my blog or listeners here at the podcast, and I will answer you either publicly here with obvious details uh, changed in order to not reveal anybody's identity, or I'll get back with you via email. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. I'm on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Margaret. I'd love for you to give me a rating or review. That would be so great. As I said in the last podcast, I don't really have a, a way to thank you for that. I'm not sure I can do a therapy session with all of you. <laughs> One, I don't have the time, and, and that might be unethical. I don't know. People are doing online therapy these days. But I do thank you for taking the time to give me a rating or a review. Plus, it's a way to help me learn. And of course, subscribe. I would really appreciate that and hope you do. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work. <laughs>